All right, God's word uh, says this, Philippians 3, 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I want to pause there for a second. Obviously, Paul has repeatedly called this church to rejoice or to have joy in the Lord over and over and over again. Verse 2, now Paul's going to warn, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, hear this, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him, and I want you to hear this, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. A question arises from an imperative command given by Paul right out of the gate in verse 1. Okay, the the heart of this passage goes all the way back into uh, verse 1 where Paul says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. The sense of this word, though, we don't necessarily get in the English equivalent. The sense of this word is called an active imperative. An imperative is a command, okay? An active means what? It's ongoing. You're seeking after uh, this, this endeavor to rejoice or have joy in the Lord. Ongoing joy throughout our lives. And so a question that we can ask when we hear that this, this word that Paul has used here, rejoice in the Lord, is an active command in Scripture, is the question comes about this. How do we or how do I actively rejoice in the Lord? How, do, how is that brought about? I enjoy, I don't know about you guys, but I enjoy uh, films or movies that are kind of the rags to riches stories. And I think it's obvious that many of us do because these types of films often draw large audiences and are lucrative for filmmakers. That's why they make them like this over and over and over again. There's a true story, a movie that came out uh, quite a while back uh, starring Will Smith, actor Will Smith, and he starred in the film The Pursuit of Happiness. Do you guys remember that film, The Pursuit of Happiness? It's a rags-to-riches type of story, a true story. It details the true story of a man named Chris Gardner. Uh, He was a homeless single dad. If you guys recall the movie, there's a a scene where he's living in a public restroom, basically, with his son. Kind of a heartbreaking and heartwarming story all at the same time. He was a homeless dad who went from rags to a lucrative career in the stock market, eventually establishing his own brokerage firm. 
And this occurred through, we find this in the film, through his persistence, his solid work ethic, and his really his will to survive. These are commendable character traits, right? That's why we like to watch movies like this, because they inspire us to live in light of uh, the way that Chris Gardner lived. As creatures, so now looking at us as creatures, human beings created to worship, this is our original occupation. Did you know that? We were created to worship God. That's the work that the Lord is, has given to us. We have an innate desire bent in this direction. However, in our fallen state, or we can call it our sinful state, the object of worship is often this, ourselves, our will, our desires. We, we often glory in our supposed, I'll use quotes on this, our supposed good works. In fact, many who continue to live in rejection of the gospel or the good news about Jesus conclude this. Why do I need Jesus? I'm a good person, right? Have you heard that before? I'm a good person. I don't really know why I need Jesus. I don't know why I need to come to church. Everything's fine without those things. My works are good enough. But, but in Paul's life, the Apostle Paul, we learn of a, a true rags-to-riches type story. A beautiful story of redemption and reconciliation of a man who was very confident, as we see in this passage, he was very confident in his own works, his own adherence to the Hebrew law, his love for God. His confidence in his understanding of the law and works pushed him, uh, if we recall scripture, the book of Acts, it pushed him to the point of zealousness that he would pursue, this great missionary of the early church would pursue and murder those whom he viewed as violators of God's law. Who were those people? Christians, right? In the book of Acts, they're called people of the way or Christians, but we're reminded in Scripture that, that all of our supposed good works, when void of a heart of worship toward God, and when placed before God as a means of reconciliation for our sin, or what we would call salvation, uh, Isaiah reminds us of this, that they are like, it uses this term, they're like filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Paul's seeming adherence to the law and zealousness for the Lord was like filthy rags because they were void of true worship through the Son. We know Him as Jesus Christ. Paul opposed Jesus' people for a season of his life. Jesus eventually, if you'll uh, recall the book of Acts again, Jesus eventually confronted Paul, at that time his name was Saul, on the road to Damascus and stated clearly when he knocked Paul in his little tushy, right? He stated clearly to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Do you see Jesus' connection with his people? That his body, the church, he, he holds as his own. Me, why are you persecuting me? It, it is apparent that, that Paul's adherence to the law and zealousness was nothing more than self-righteousness and pride, arrogance, misguided zeal, and self-worship. We have a three-letter word for this. Sin. He was a sinful man. Paul needed... And we need the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ. Paul's works are like filthy rags, and yet in true rags-to-riches fashion, Paul, 
after being radically reconciled to God through Jesus, we know this happened. The record of his debt is canceled and the righteousness of the Messiah, that is Jesus, is credited to him, right? Riches lavished undeservedly on Paul. He would proclaim and declare to others the riches he received in Ephesians 3.8. He says this to me, Though I'm the very least of all the saints or all the people of God, this grace was given, hear this, to preach to the Gentiles, here it is, the unsearchable, what? Riches of Christ. True rags to riches. We, we can think of so many rags to riches stories. Chris Gardner was one, or Steve Jobs, or Oprah Winfrey. But as much as we laud these incredible stories, remember, we know of and have experienced for ourselves an amazing rags to riches story through Jesus. We, we celebrate what the Lord has done in the Apostle Paul, and we celebrate how the Lord has turned our rags into the unsearchable riches of Christ, so that, now circling back around to rejoicing in the Lord, so that we can obtain ongoing active joy in the Lord. Again, the Bible says, actively and imperatively, commanded, it's commanded in Scripture, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And isn't this the proper response for those who have exchanged their rags for the unsearchable riches of Jesus? What else would you do? What other choice do we have than to rejoice in the Lord when we truly reflect on what Jesus accomplished for us through the cross and his resurrection? And so the question still remains, though. How do we actively rejoice in the Lord? How do we actively rejoice in the Lord? Number one, simply put, choose joy. We have a choice to make. Are we going to choose joy? Are we going to wallow around in self-pity? Right? Hello, Captain Obvious, right? Choose joy. Sometimes we, we need the obvious pointed out to us. How do we actively rejoice in the Lord? We choose to. We have a choice in our life. I really think that's what Paul's getting at uh, here when he says, finally, my brothers, in verse one, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, right? That the active imperative command that he gives to the church. And he's saying here now, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul's saying, I'm gonna keep saying this over and over and over again because I want you to understand it, that you need to have joy in the Lord. You need to choose to have joy in the Lord. And, and so when, when I approach this passage as a pastor, it's easy because we've talked about joy over and over and over again throughout Philippians to say, eh, we'll just gloss over verse one. But verse one informs this whole passage that we're in. It's the whole point of it. Paul again is, is reiterating that we must have a joy in our heart, a joy aimed at glorifying and worshiping God. The, the Bible is repeatedly setting the standard before us. Be joyful people. Rejoice in the Lord. Choose joy. And the question should come about when we truly reflect on where we were before we met Jesus. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we rejoice in the Lord? Something radical has occurred to us through the Spirit of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.3, 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the, I want you to notice this, number one, by the what? Spirit of God and glory, worship and glory in who? Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I put no confidence in myself. 
I only put my confidence in the righteousness of Jesus, which helps me to worship God through the Spirit of Christ. In other words, we rejoice in the Lord because this, when I was reading through this reminded me of an amazing chapter of Scripture, Romans chapter 8. I love that chapter. I love the beginning of that chapter. And, and as I was reading through this, this connection of worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, I was brought back to Romans uh, chapter 8. And this isn't in your notes, but I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it for you this morning. We rejoice in the Lord because of what? Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. For God has done, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, taking on human flesh, and for sin... Okay, for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus there. In other words, simply put this way, Jesus died for our sins and the Spirit has revealed the beauty of the gospel or the good news of what Jesus has accomplished to us in order that, this is what's to come, in order that we can obtain the righteous requirement of God. Okay, we choose joy because God has not only forgiven us the debt of our sin through Jesus, but has done this also, right? He didn't just set your account at zero, but he has applied to us positively. Hear this, the righteousness of Jesus. This is amazing. Like the debt's not just canceled, but I got cash in the bank now, right? And, and, and Paul calls it the unsearchable riches of Christ, and so what are ways that we can actively, you know, it's not easy to just choose to be joyful. What are ways that we can actively choose joy? Paul gives us first a warning, okay? He gives us three lookout statements. Whenever the Bible says something three times, you probably should pay attention. He gives us three lookout statements. So we want to look out for that which robs joy. He says this in verse 2. Like, Paul's got some strong words in this section, Look out for the dogs. We're not just talking about your puppy, okay? I got, I got a couple dogs. I love them. Paul's not talking about those kind of dogs. When I was in high school, we used to take trips, mission trips down into Mexico. And I remember the, the first time we went to this, we had this little taco stand that we would frequent down there and eat like 150 tacos. And do you want to know what hung around those taco stands? These mangy, nasty dogs. And one of the things that we had to, when Karen and I, my wife, later took missionary groups down there, it was usually high schoolers, we had to tell them, like, hey, don't pet the dogs, right? Look out for the dogs. Those are not like pet dogs. Those aren't cute little puppies. They're nasty. They're mean. They're, they're scroungily looking. They got every disease known to man. Don't touch the dog. Look out for the dogs. He goes on. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, right? Look out, look out, look out. What do you think we should do with that? Look out, right? The, the Bible is making a clear point, beginning in, at verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, and then Paul says here, and look out, right? We're going to categorize this into, I'm going to call them two things that rob our joy. So joy robbers, right? Joy robbers. 
in the Christian life. Number one, legalism. Legalism is a joy, a joy robber. And legalism usually emerges from within. Okay, within. Now here's a legalism that's going on in context in this church is led by a group within that we would call in, in a, a Christian scholarship the Judaizers. Okay? I don't expect you to know who the Judaizers are, but what they were were Jews that were within the church that were adding to the requirements of salvation, which is faith alone in the righteousness of Christ alone, and adherence of the Gentiles to the Jewish law. That's who the Judaizers are. Okay, what was the adherence? They wanted them to get what? Circumcised. All the guys in here just went, oof, okay. And it's important, I think, as we go through this, I want to define legalism because I think our definition of legalism is a little too loose. Legalism is, is this, is strict adherence to man's rules as a means to salvation, okay? It's an adding to the work of Jesus, and it can often stand in opposition to grace. But I want to caution. This is the caution. Oftentimes we can accuse others of legalism when they really are adhering to the checks or convictions in their conscience, which has left them to abstain from certain practices or hobbies or actions. But true legalism is this. This is the de- true legalism is seeking to add to the requirements of salvation works in order, in their opinion, to truly be saved, right, in the eyes of the legalist, to truly obtain salvation through Jesus. It's taking man-made rules beyond what Scripture clearly teaches. One such example is conveyed in the latter part of verse 2. The third lookout. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh Then Paul says in the next sentence, we know what he's getting at because he says, we are the circumcision, right? We are the people of God. It's not this outward physical act that saves you. It's faith. We are saved through faith in the righteousness of Christ. Again, Paul here is alluding to the practice of early Judaizers who demanded that Gentile converts conform to the Jewish ceremonial and judicial law as shown in their demand that converts be circumcised, even though the apostles had established that Gentile Christians need not submit to the practice of circumcision back in Acts chapter 15, before this letter, I believe, was written. As we look to connect this teaching to our cultural context, there are classic legalisms which have been unfairly placed on the back of Christians as an additional yoke of salvation or practice of the faith. And so that's our challenge this morning is what do we attempt to add to the finished work of Jesus that's outside the bounds of what's clearly taught in Scripture, right? And that's where we need wisdom to discern. We need God's Spirit to reveal to us. We need to search the Scriptures. We need to talk with one another as we hone what these things are. But now we're going to go in the opposite direction. But avoidance of legalism, right, that joy robber, should never lead to this, a licentious or immoral lifestyle. Paul, Paul would reiterate this point in Romans when he says, Do we sin all the more so that grace may abound? To which he says what? By no means. Legalism can and is a joy robber of the Christian. But an exaggerated avoidance of legalism should never lead the Christian towards such a low view of grace that one would conclude, I'll just do what I want because God's going to forgive me anyways. 
We should never come to that conclusion. Which brings us to our next joy robber. Kind of the opposite of legalism would be what we would call license. Just, I got a license to sin because I got forgiveness for days, right? That is not a scriptural teaching. And that's often, whereas legalism is usually an internal influence, license is often an external influence where we desire to live in what we would call a worldly or fleshly fashion. Worldly living, I want to be very clear, worldly living never leads to true and lasting joy, only despair. As much as the world around us wants to say that if you just continue to do that thing because God made you that way, you're going to be so happy. That's not true. Worldly living never leads to true and lasting joy. Again, Paul says, right, look out. Look out, verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. He's not mincing words when he says this. This is serious language that he's using. A sure joy robber is an attitude that views God's grace as a means to continue in sin. And here's my warning. In fact, it it is safe to conclude that if one views God's grace as a vending machine of perpetual forgiveness so that they can continue in debt-free sin for, for the entirety of their human existence, then they really don't understand the gospel. And I think it's safe to conclude this, that the Spirit of God is not in them. Look out for that which draws you from the true joy of free and transformed living through the work of the Son founded in the Spirit of God. The Bible emphasizes this point in Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, what? Serve one another. Look out for that which robs your ability to actively choose joy. Okay, that's the negative side positively now. Number three, find joy by placing your confidence in the Lord, or we could say the Lord Jesus, not your own works. Find joy by placing your confidence in the Lord, not your works. This is the heart of what Paul's going to get at here in verses four to nine. He says this, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, this is so important, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Here's some strong language. And count them as rubbish. Our English translation doesn't capture the depth of what Paul is getting at in that word. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith and Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I want to be clear that this is not a boast by Paul. This is not an arrogant string of statements. Rather, it, I, I believe in Paul we have testimony time. He's saying, hey, look at all this that I did, and yet I still didn't know Christ. I counted as loss. 
He's conveying, Paul is, to be very clear, he's conveying the importance of the work of Jesus applied to us by faith. I think we can actually hear, strangely, there's, there's echoes of Solomon from the Old Testament conveying the wisdom of life in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes. Now, there's a, there's a distinct difference between Paul and Solomon. I want to be clear. Solomon sought every facet of supposed pleasure and joy, not in the heavenly realms, but in the earthly life. He had everything, didn't he? He had wealth. Obviously, the guy was good looking. He had hundreds of wives. He had wisdom. He had power. Every worldly, fleshly desire he fulfilled, he sought after. And he concluded at the end of Ecclesiastes, he says, it's what? Worthless. Vanity. It was a joy robber. But he concludes, simply put, the end of the matter, fear God, keep his commandments. But here... Paul, reflecting on his former self, as Solomon did in Ecclesiastes, Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, had in, he had in, in his mind, before coming to know the, the unsearchable riches of Christ, in his mind, he had done all that he can to uphold the legal requirement of righteousness. And yet the sin of pride still decimated his works and accounted for him nothing in the eyes of God. He tried to do everything according to the law, but he realized in that, that the law was not given to save, rather to reveal our sin debt, to expose to us that we need the righteousness of another, the righteousness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In Solomon, we have exampled this, look out for license, right, from our last point. And in Paul, we have exampled, look out for legalism. And yet, neither legalism or license, one, delivered true joy in the Lord, and two, brought them into the true reason for existence. Our true reason for existence, why we are human beings, is we were created to do this, to worship and glorify God. We were created to worship and glorify God. Paul concludes, I count all my supposed righteousness under the law, he says, as rubbish. If you have a King James Version, it'll say dung. Y'all know what that word means? We're getting ready to eat chili, so I'm not going to talk about it. (laughs) The reality is that, that Paul could not rejoice in the Lord as a Christless Pharisee. Because he wasn't truly doing, this is the reason why, he wasn't truly doing what God created him to do, to worship and glorify the God that created all things. And he needed, and we need, hear this, he needed and we need two things. We need our debt, our sin debt forgiven, and we need the righteousness of a perfect sacrifice applied to us I want to be clear, in Jesus, we have both of those things. If you think of this financially, in Jesus, our our credit card debt has, has not just been erased, but we also have his riches, his righteousness applied to us. This is mind blowing that God would do this for us. 
Again, in Ephesians, Paul says, I get to preach what? The unsearchable riches of Christ Jesus. He exchanged his, the, the filthy rags of his misguided adherence to the law for the unsearchable riches of Jesus. And this gives Paul true joy in the midst of any circumstance. Let's be reminded of his circumstances. He's in prison while he's writing this letter. And he says, rejoice in the Lord. He chooses joy in Jesus in the midst of imprisonment and shipwreck, times of triumph in the gospel, in the advance of the gospel throughout the known world, and times of suffering and persecution. And he says this, rejoice in the Lord. Number four, pursue joy by looking forward to what is to come. We look forward to what is to come. Our joyful rags to riches story is not finished. This isn't the end. Verses 10 and 11. He says that I may know him, that's Jesus, and the power of his, what? Resurrection. Paul's bringing us full circle now. The resurrection, the heart of the matter. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, any means possible, I may attain, here it is again, the resurrection from the dead. Here's the truth. We are not just heaven-bound people. We are glory-bound people. Now we're, we're getting into the, the true eternal purposes of God's redemptive plan. See, oftentimes, like, our faith is very personal. We have a personal relationship with Jesus. We have to make that decision for ourselves. Am I going to choose to follow Jesus, or am I going to continue to live in rebellion against God and his redemptive plan? But beyond that, did you know that God has a beautiful redemptive plan for all of creation? It's not all about us. When we, when we think about the resurrection of Jesus, it's something greater than just new bodies. And that's pretty amazing. Because I'm looking around in a room and there's a whole lot of people with like walking boots and peg legs and all kind of busted up illnesses and stuff, right? We got all sort of stuff wrong with us. So a resurrected body sounds good right now, doesn't it? But when when Paul speaks of the resurrection, he's not just talking about new glorified bodies. It is that. And also upon Jesus' second coming, he's speaking of this, the glorious remaking of all things. This is something we should think of often. If we want to choose to be joyful people, we should lift our eyes to the horizon and see what the Lord has in store. His redemptive purposes, not just for us, but for the whole of the creation. Again, in Romans 8, we find that even the creation, Paul says, is groans and waits in eager longing. He says, an expectation for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Creation waits in eager longing for Jesus to return and for all things to be made new. All in the original language means all, everything. 
for sin's curse to be lifted and all wrongs to be made right, right? The end game of the final resurrection is not one of disembodied bliss floating around on clouds playing harps, but a true physical and spiritual remaking of all things. This is why the the last book of scripture, Revelation, speaks of of the old passing away and, and a new heaven and new earth coming. We have to think about this. The Apostle John, he's, he's under the inspiration of God's Spirit. He gives us this, this revelation is what it's called. Okay, not revelations, revelation. Is that His revelation is this. He says that, that the holy city, he says, New Jerusalem will come down out of heaven from God. Thus bringing God's glory plan to conclusion. Here it is. This is what it is. God will dwell with his people for all of eternity. I got to go there and read it. It says this in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away can't wait and we cannot inherit this blessing this purpose in our life this joy fulfillment without a resurrected body this is what we look forward to which should bring joy we look forward to an eternity with God and the new heavens and new earth truly living as he intended Right To worship and glorify and to rule with God for all of eternity. Choose joy, right? Rejoice in the Lord. Here's the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus. This is why we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus because it proved that he is God in the flesh. He's the only person that said, I'm going to die in three days. I'm going to raise from the dead, conquering sin and death. And he did it. There are thousands of people that, that witness Jesus raised from the dead and they willingly laid down their lives for that truth. We can be confident that Jesus has indeed raised from the dead and he has promised this, that by faith in his life, death, and resurrection, one, that our sin debt has been cleared, we have been credited the righteousness of Jesus, and we've been promised that we will receive a resurrected body like his. And so we can, we can end with this beautiful passage of Scripture this morning. When Paul sings and declares and taunts death, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58. He says, I tell, you, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, hear this, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, your work is not in vain. Amen.